Welcome back. This week is a little different. Um, we're going off the beaten path, so aka we're going out of the textbook entirely, and going to talk about re-entry issues that plague those who have been released after a criminal, mainly felony, conviction, and the collateral damage that this conviction has, not only on the offender, but on the family, children, and communities too. While we tend to associate our criminal punishment as being directed at the individual offender, we tend to neglect the fact that many other people are impacted by their incarceration. So let's start with the basics. So once an offender is released, what happens? Um, and for the sake of this conversation, we're focused on those convicted of felonies that landed them in prison for some time. So once released, one, they receive back the items that they came in with, and two, they receive a small amount of money. So in California, they're typically released with $200. That's it. Good luck. Um, I know in Texas, they get $100 and they have a bus voucher to anywhere in the state. And again, that's it. And with that, they typically go back to exactly where they came from before their incarceration. So back to the same neighborhoods with their potentially um, a not pro-social neighborhood with the same types of influences around them that probably are also not good pro-social influences, and typically that have a lack of opportunities in general. And yet we expect them to reform, um, which is kind of ironic when we don't have them set up for success. And so it's no wonder that most people that come into our correctional system actually come back to it. Remember, most either violate parole or commit new crimes very soon after their release. A lot of times this actually happens within the first three months, but even in totality, upwards of two out of three offenders come back to prison within three years and four out of five offenders come back within five years. So what that tells us is that most, falter along the way of potentially even trying to reform. And so why is that? Um, perhaps it's because they have no other options. Again, they go back to the same area that they came from, and it's hard to get a job already, and not that there were likely any decent paying jobs in the area to begin with. But now jobs can deny you based upon the fact that you have to check that little box on applications that says you're an ex-felon. And it's hard to get adequate housing as well. Many places can deny you because of your prior conviction, and there are geographical limits put on you because of your conviction, especially if you are on parole. So even if, say, grandma wants to take you in, she might not even be able to. And it's crazy. Um, what's crazy about this is that adequate employment and housing are the two most important things that must be met in order for ex-offenders to succeed, so aka to not recidivate. And that's based upon years and years of research. So the best things we can do for offenders are, one, get them job and vocational training in prison by partnering with, say, businesses that will hire them directly upon release. Um, we tend to do this with um, business tax breaks is how we typically are able to uh, work this. And it's worth it to not spend, say, $80,000 a year to house an offender in California. And research supports this idea as offenders who are able to secure and keep decent paying jobs are much less likely to recidivate. And two, we need to get them set up with housing. Studies conducted in multiple states have shown that giving housing vouchers to ex-offenders for three to six months to get them on their feet drastically reduces their chances of recidivating. So we know that these two factors are imperative. And then other things that offenders are typically going to need are good social networks. And this means good people to support them and to get them away from potentially bad influences and bad choices. And remember, we're sending them back to the same places with a lot of the same problems, so we don't necessarily find that this happens. So those are some of the reentry battles for the offender themselves. But what about for the other people impacted by their conviction? 
Unfortunately, we may think we are only impacting the person we put in prison, but many times we impact their family, children, and their communities too. Take a low-level drug offender or drug dealer, for example. While yes, we might agree that drug dealing is quote-unquote bad, it might be the only option of survival. Think back to the issues in Camden, New Jersey that you learned about in the Waiting on the World to Change documentary. Dire circumstances can perhaps require desperate measures. And maybe that drug dealing money was the only money that the family had coming in. And maybe this guy is actually a great dad to his kids. So when we incarcerate him for his crime, his family no longer has money and his kids no longer have a dad around that could have been a good influence actually for the children. And that's pretty stressful for them in general. And now perhaps the spouse, generally single mothers are really what take over in this case, need to um, you know, work perhaps two jobs. And then the kids are left unsupervised because let's face it, childcare is expensive. And these kids are actually now more likely to become involved in the juvenile justice system by both of those two factors. So this incarceration of our drug dealer might actually impact his kids the most, which is very sad, isn't it? And we have to remember the collateral damage. Um, in addition to this, many studies on children of those incarcerated have found detrimental effects psychologically. The incarceration and removal of a parent is generally not a good thing. It can be, especially if abuse is happening, but that's not always the case. In addition to the family unit, the community at large is also impacted. We have certain areas where it's so normalized for many of the people, typically males, to have gone to prison that we end up with high concentrations of single mothers raising kids in poverty. And remember, we took away the sources of income, and that's part of the battle here, which again leads to more juvenile-based crime issues in these socially disorganized places. And in addition to that, the constant removal of these individuals actually messes up things that pertain to politics and money. When we do the census every 10 years, we tend to calculate numbers based upon where people currently reside at the census. So when we have a lot of urban minorities locked up in rural white areas, we count them there, which elevates the political advantage for these small white areas and removes it from the urban minority area. This comes at a cost of money because many social monetized programs are based upon population sizes. And so, for an example, in the 2010 census, Chicago stood to lose millions of dollars for funding for their urban areas because the people from those areas were removed into prisons outside of the city limits. And in addition to this, when people are incarcerated and even out on probation or parole, in most states they cannot vote. So we have communities where the majority of people cannot vote, and people tend to learn their voting behavior from family and those around them. So even those who can vote in these areas tend to do so at much lower rates. So when we incarcerate individuals, we don't really just impact them. We impact, again, families, children, and communities just as much. So I hope you learned something new today and that these issues start to humanize the lack of justice that our system might serve, because I beg to say that most of you agree that we don't want, um, we don't really want to hurt all of these other people, but we have to recognize that we are and figure out how to better this system. All right, until next time, y'all.